Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Colin Wright, Quillette assistant editor and a former academic scientist. The reason I reached out to you originally, Colin, that we're going to go to lots of other places in this conversation, is uh, back in, I think it was April, April 6th or thereabouts, you posted that you had an opportunity to extend your contract at Penn State for another year, but you were looking for faculty positions and you'd done a lot of work on it and you concluded that it wasn't likely to happen. And uh, you posted that you thought your social media presence and some of your popular essays, in particular, I think, Wall Street Journal essay, had uh, perhaps hindered your chances. And you said you suspected, at least, and had heard from friends that people might be considering hiring you, but we were afraid the HR departments would block you, et cetera. Could you tell us a little bit about that episode in your life, which has had to have been uh, very traumatic? Maybe a little bit tell the audience about your field of study, how long you've been working in it, et cetera. Yeah. So um, I'm a behavioral ecologist, which means I study basically the evolutionary fitness consequences of behavior. And I studied that with social insects and arachnids, mainly social spiders and paper wasps. Uh, I had been, I guess, on the path for this for about the last decade or so, so four years of undergrad, and then uh, about four and a half years of grad school, and then a two-year postdoc. Uh, It wasn't until about two years ago when I started to kind of be active on social media and speaking out against some bad ideas that I saw kind of creeping up on my social media among among friends and other academics where they were denying the reality of of biological sex. Um, Whereas before, there was sort of people's distinguishing between sex and gender identity where were considered different. And then I saw people outright denying that biological sex was real. They classify it as like a social construct. And so I decided I'd wanted to push back against that. And especially since journals like Nature were writing sort of these articles and opinion editorials that were basically condoning this sort of view. And that's when it all kind of took off. I wrote an article for Quillette called The New Evolution Deniers that sort of went uh, pretty viral that was calling out sort of the the pseudoscience and the nonsense of this sex spectrum ideology and the fact that we're all confused about what sex we are, that maybe trans individuals aren't actually the sex that, uh, you know, they were born as. And this sort of landed me in a lot of hot water, getting, you know, people trying to cancel me online. Yeah, so I guess I, I could go into some of the details of what that was, like some of my experiences. Would you like me to go into some of those? Yeah, let's do that. I got some more points down downstream. We'll talk about that. But essentially, it was around this, uh, the idea of trying to tease apart the ideas of sex and gender and got on the wrong side of some factions who uh, you believe essentially sabotage your career. Is that a fair enough way to, to short frame it? Yeah, there's, there's never... So I, I left academia on my own accord. So there's some people who are claiming that I, you know, I'm, that I'm claiming I got fired or something. And that's not the case. It was more seeing the, the indirect signals I was getting from my department saying that the students are feeling unsafe with me on campus, talking to professors at other universities saying, 
you know, in private that they would actually be interested in hiring me, but they are almost certain that their HR departments wouldn't clear me. Yeah, basically along those things. There was there's a big job board in our field called the Eco Evo Jobs Wiki, and it's the main job board that everyone posts their their jobs in academia to in my field. And people had gone on there and just made jobs with the titles, you know, Colin Wright is a white supremacist, don't hire him, things like that. So it's it's hard to say how many job offers I wasn't getting because it's, you just don't you don't see the data point. Um, but I do think it likely had a big impact. And given how much I published and how many first authored papers I had, I really felt like I should be getting more interviews than I was. But again, that's impossible to really uh, determine. Yeah, that was a that was the next question I wanted to ask you. I did look at your publication history. Unfortunately, most of the papers were behind paywalls. Sons of bitches. Yeah. If I were Bill Gates, first thing I'd do is buy all those <laughs> sons of bitchin' uh, journal publishers and, and free the information, right? But I've worked with young scientists and uh, talked with lots of them, and you know, I've come to find that most of them have a fairly realistic view of their chances, right? They'll they'll say, all right, well, my publication history is sort of a slam dunk for Eastern Kentucky University. It's a, a bit of a stretch for a lower end tier one research university. And frankly, I'm not going to waste my time applying to the uh, really prestigious places. Mm-hmm. Where do you think, honestly, your prospects were for landing a uh, faculty job irrespective, say, a tenure-track faculty job, irrespective of the of the controversy? I think they were quite high to land a job at a, just like an R1 top research university. I mean, I, just two years into my postdoc, my total publications were almost 30. I think I have 28 papers, and nearly half of them are first-authored papers, and they're in decent journals as well. So at least from my career stage, uh, someone that was applying for their first assistant professor position, uh, it's quite productive. And especially since I've been seeing a lot of other friends and colleagues who are in my exact same field, just getting interview after interview and even getting jobs where they had published, you know, considerably less than than what I had been publishing in worse journals. So again, it's I, it's impossible to know exactly what it is. I mean, your application is more than just like your publication record. It could have been part of the diversity statements because mine, you know, mine was an anti-diversity statements, but it was sort of not towing that sort of social justice line that they want. So maybe that could have been an aspect of it. But, you know, it's hard to tell. I think based on my credentials alone and my, my productivity, I think I should have had a good shot or at least getting a lot of interviews. But over... Uh, maybe I sent out around 150 applications. I only got about three interviews over the last two years, just a, just a phone interview, and then never moved beyond that. So do with that as you will. Yep, yeah, it's, yep. it's unclear. Yep. Uh, as, as, that was my uh, initial reaction, too, just looking at the number of publications and where they were. I said, hmm, this guy should have at least gotten a serious look at a lot of places. Yeah, at least, in, you know, at least a phone interview. You know, there's, there's something to be said about going to the interview and not interviewing well and not getting a call back. But not even to get the first first step and just getting getting on the phone with somebody who's who's interested. That was a little bit of a red flag to me that maybe uh, there's there's something going on. Yeah, that was why I reached out to you, because if universities are now actively discriminating against people for their scientific views, that is very bad. And that is something that really should not be taking place, at least in my view. You know, what's your sense? Uh, you're way closer to it than I am of how pervasive is this neo-censorship that's now not only extended to 
you know, political statement, but now to scientific views. I mean, you're, ba- you're basically expressing a scientific view in, in popular journals, perhaps, but your career has been put at risk, or so it would appear, due to your scientific views. Yeah, I think it's a lot more pervasive than people would tend to give it credit for. I remember when I was first sort of speaking out about this sort of censorship, a lot of people were saying that, oh, no, this isn't occurring. This is, you know, universities aren't looking at your social media. And then over time, these same people eventually said something along the lines of, well, I mean, yeah, we should be scouring your social media. Like you could sh- should consider your your pr- online presence as part of your application. So that their narrative really changed from like, don't be so alarmist to sort of, yeah, well, we do look at social media and it's important that we do. And then for other professors to tell me that, yeah, that the HR is coming in at the beginning of the hiring process rather than traditionally at sort of somewhere along the line, if, if anything were to come up that were required at HR, then it's, it's pretty clear that there's some active censorship going on. We know in Berkeley, for instance, that they rate people's diversity statements uh, first and foremost, and then only the ones that are scoring, you know, the fives and sixes out of six points are then passed along to the departments for them to choose among. So uh, I think it's pervasive in, in getting a lot worse for sure. That's sort of what it certainly sounded like. Let's jump into sort of the meat of the controversy here, and we'll get on to some other issues later. But a recent flare-up in which you made some commentary on, I believe, or at least retweeted, is about this J.K. Rowling's incident and her statements that sex is real and is not on a spectrum. And the distinction, which people seem to want to try to make go away, between sex and how people may express themselves in gender roles. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that controversy and your own views on this. Yeah. So it's, it's been something that's I've just watched evolve over time of the the narrative sort of switching between or switching from that, you know, sex is biology, gender is identity. And that was something a lot of people got on board from. And that sort of morphed into this position now where they're sort of blurring the lines between gender identity and biological sex, or sometimes they'll even say, yeah, they're still different, but, you know, they're both on a spectrum or they're both social constructs and that you can't boil down someone's sex to one specific characteristic and therefore, you know, a sex is sort of an arbitrary place of where to draw the lines. And uh, this is just a claim that is completely not true. And it's from a scientific standpoint, you know, while some people might have ambiguous sex characteristics uh, that, you know, ovo testes and, and ambiguous genitalia, that's not to say that that's the case for everybody. So just because some individuals might be difficult to classify doesn't mean that we're not abundantly clear about the sex of nearly everyone in society. And so that was what my recent article was basically discussing. It was debunking this sort of sex spectrum ideology, the claim that we don't exist in classes of male and female. And, you know, then there's an ambiguous, maybe some few individuals that are considered intersex, but instead that we should consider just sort of maleness and femaleness as these sort of amorphic categories that we're all, we're all just differing degrees of male and female and not definitively one or the other. Uh, that's just not the case. And uh, it's important to, I think, to get the, the science correct on that issue because it's permeating in areas like having biological males compete in female sports or going to male prisons or just having people claim that, you know, they can they can just assert that they're not the sex that they are and that that sort of creates reality for them. 
Yeah, that is, uh, it seems we're getting more and more of that. You had a very nice analogy in one of your articles, which was to compare the distinction between sex as in the biological sense of sex, which is generally binary. But as you point out, there are a small percentage of intersex individuals and, you know, socially constructed gender. I think you called it the biker and the cyclist model. Could you Mm -hmm. take us through that? I I really thought that was very useful. Like I told my wife today that story and she said, I like that. Yeah. So one of the main arguments that people advocating the sex spectrum model use is this argument from what are called like secondary sexual characteristics. And they'll they'll say that traits that individuals have like overall body shape, you know, facial hair, voice pitch, how tall people are, how their fats distributed over their bodies, you know, a, a breast development like like that. They'll claim that these things, while, you know, they tend to be, you know, associated with males and females, there's sort of overlap in all these categories. Like you can have males that have some level of breast development or females that have more sort of narrow hips and kind of have more masculinized features. And they use this to say that, you know, because there's overlap between males and females in these these certain characteristics, that this is evidence that sex is on a spectrum rather than, you know, discrete male and female categories. And what this basically is is conflating is the difference between primary sex organs and secondary sex characteristics. So the difference between those is you have a, a primary sex organs are just your gonads, your ovaries or testes. And then secondary sex characteristics are things that develop during puberty that's correlated to the different hormones that is produced by either your ovaries or testes. And the biker and cyclist analogy is basically meant to highlight what this distinction between primary and secondary sex characteristics. So, for instance, you can be a a biological male, but you can have all these sort of secondary traits that are associated with being female. Like you could be a male and have fat deposited around your your hips more, or you could have some breast development and a high-pitched voice. That doesn't make you any less male because you happen to have these traits that are more commonly associated with being female. And, you know, conversely, you can be a female that has narrower hips. You could even maybe have some facial hair growth and a deeper voice, and that doesn't make you any less female. The analogy I used for this was looking at bikers and cyclists. You know, motorcycles and bicycles, they're kind of similar. They have seats and spokes and two wheels and handlebars, um, but they differ in a fundamental way. So the, the primary difference between a motorcycle and a bicycle is the fact that a motorcycle has an engine and is powered by fuel, where a bicycle is powered by, you know, pedaling legs. Whether or not you're, you are a biker or a cyclist depends entirely on the type of vehicle that you're riding. So, you know, bikers ride motorcycles, cyclists ride bicycles. But there's also these secondary traits associated with bikers and cyclists. So in the, in the article I wrote, If you ride a motorcycle, bikers, you're more likely to be wearing leather jackets and uh, jeans and maybe bandanas. And you could even possibly have tattoos and more facial hair. And you could maybe correlate with all types of different types of uh, all types of behavior as well. Whereas cyclists are more likely to wear sort of those spandex bodysuits and aerodynamic helmets and all that stuff. But the main the main difference here is the fact that if you have a person riding a motorcycle who's wearing a spandex bodysuit and aerodynamic helmets, that doesn't make them not a biker anymore or less of a biker. Uh, it doesn't make them a cyclist because they're wearing the clothes that are commonly associated with being a, a cyclist. And likewise, a cyclist wearing a leather jacket and 
uh, you know, has tattoos uh, and wearing jeans, they're not less of a, a cyclist and more of a biker because they're wearing, you know, the clothing more typically associated with being a biker. That's sort of how I distinguish between primary and secondary traits. Yeah, let me give a tangible one and get your response to it. Let's say a uh, transgendered male who started life and still biologically a female has uh, some hormone treatments, testosterone, et cetera, and starts to manifest Adam's apple, you know, uh, shavable beard, uh, a little bit more upper body mass, et cetera. Those would then correspond to these, you know, phenomena like the biker wearing spandex and an aerodynamic helmet. Exactly. Yeah. They, if you're a biological female and you start taking testosterone, uh, you basically are putting yourself through a form of male puberty and you will start to develop those secondary characteristics associated with being male more commonly. But yeah, but these, these secondary traits don't make you into a male. They just make you kind of appear more masculine. Um, so that's the fundamental difference. It doesn't change your ovaries into testes, which is the primary difference between uh, biological males and females. Okay, good. Just want to make that clear. We weren't talking about clothing, really. We we're using it as yeah. an analogy, and because of you know cross dressing, which is very different than transgender, uh, though there's some overlap. I wanted to sort of pick that that distinction apart a little bit. Uh, let's go on to the next topic, and this it seems in some ways related. And I'd love to get your thoughts on how these two issues are related. And you've written on the idea of the new evolution deniers and. Uh, you quoted one of my favorites, Daniel Dennett, about how evolution is a universal acid that reached through just about any traditional concept. And in fact, I'd call out to our readers who want one of the most provocative evolutionary about everything perspectives to read Dan Dennett's book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. This book, this will change how you look at the world if you're not an evolutionary biologist, which I am not, but I uh, uh, have read the book, and I know Dan Dennett, and I can recommend it heartily. Why don't you talk a little bit about these new class of evolutionary deniers and how they differ from, you know, the guys in Arkansas who wanted to, uh, you know, outlaw teaching of evolution, etc. Yeah, so they do differ in fundamental ways between what we traditionally think of evolution deniers, which is mainly those individuals coming from sort of the, the evangelical, you know, the Christian writer, just, you know, uh, have a religious um, objection to evolution. The new, what I call evolution deniers, they don't deny evolution completely. You know, it's it's mainly they deny evolution from the neck up. So they usually have no problem with saying that, you know, our bodies are these evolved things. And, you know, we, we have all these selection pressures that led to our bodies having, you know, opposable thumbs and things like that. But when it comes to our psychology, there's sort of this blank slate essentialist idea that we are all the products of just our environment and that there's nothing about our brains that's evolved. There's no evolved sex differences in our behaviors and preferences. These are all just the result of differences in, uh, in your upbringing and the, the social environment. And I compare this in my New Evolution Nyers piece to sort of like the Catholic Church where they seem to be kind of okay with evolution up to a point, but then they still say that, you know, at some point along the line, you know, a soul was injected into us. So they, they and, you know, evolu God kind of helped evolution along in some ways. So, yeah, so the, the new evolution deniers are these, basically the people who are denying evolved sex differences in, in personality. And now in actual biological terms, they're, they're denying this, not, not just sex differences 
in personality, but sex differences generally, and they don't think male and female exist as real categories. So, you know, it's an issue when you have the evangelicals coming at evolution because, you know, you don't want individuals denying this and, and trying to teach, you know, creationism or something in our schools. Uh, but for the most part, they were easy to keep at bay because evangelical Christians don't have a really strong presence in academia. But the problem is really much more of an issue now because these new evolution deniers, they're actually within academia. They're, they're biologists. When I was at grad school, many of the new grad students, even some of the professors were sort of in this mentality of not looking at actually evolved differences in, in, in personality uh, type traits. Um, so it's, it's much more hard to, to root out because the attacks on evolution now are coming from within instead of from the outside. And uh, behavioral psychology doesn't only focus on sex-linked personality differences, right? You know, through things like twin studies and twins raised apart and things like that, uh, they found, you know, significant heritable differences on all kinds of personality attributes. Yeah, so it's, and, and it's not just a thing for humans either. It's uh, in the animal kingdom, almost every animal species you go out and look at you not only find these personality differences between the sexes, but also just among individuals within sexes too. There's a tremendous amount of, of personality variation uh, out there. Yeah, this kind of goes back to the blank slateism, which I thought had seen its day, right? Yeah. I remember when I went to college in the early 70s, there was a surprisingly large amount of it running around loose, particularly in the humanities and the uh, the less rigorous social sciences. But then it seemed like it got pushed off the field in the 70s and 80, later 70s, 80s, and 90s as much more really solid research base came in. And as you say, not just on humans, but on other species, uh, you know, probably all the way down to your, your wasps and such. What could have caused it to make a comeback despite the evidence? Yeah, that's something I keep asking myself all the time. Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure it ever really went away in any big way, I just think of oh, something over the last 10 years, there's just been a ramping up of this concern for any differences of, of between sexes or even any identifiable group, really, because this is seen as sort of maybe not even it's empirically wrong, but that such information can be used by the wrong people in order to justify their bigotry to some degree. You know, like it might not be correct to say that there's no evolved sex differences in personality and preference, but in the wrong hands of truly, you know, people who are truly sexist, this is a bad narrative that you you don't want them to get their hands on because they'll use it for, for bad ends. Um, there just seems to be a heightened sensitivity now along all of these, these issues, and it's really coming to a head right now, um, especially over the last five years is when I started seeing it really, really start to ramp up. And it's 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 definitely very concerning. Yeah, that uh, that argument. Oh, but uh, you know, bad people will use these findings. It's kind of like people who oppose data from anthropology that early man, uh, early humans. Let's be uh, clear, but mostly men, were violent and warlike, right? I'll throw in probably patriarchal and xenophobic too. And we, we can't say that yeah, because it will stir up bad people. Of course, that fails a very well-known fallacy called, was it the natural uh, naturalist fallacy? I think that's it from Hume, yeah. the also known as the is-ought fallacy, you know, that in human affairs, if you say this is the way things were, or even if we have a genetic 
tendency towards X, and again, with lots of variance between individuals, that that's the way it ought to be. That's a logical fallacy. And uh, the people that make this argument that we shouldn't tell the truth seem to forget something we've known for 300 years, that uh, just because something has a tendency or was true in the past doesn't mean it's the way we should run our human societies today. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely an issue with trying to link sort of these moral components onto just facts of reality. Because if you decide to, to link them, which I don't think we should do, you know, your your value as a human isn't dependent on any certain, uh, you know, how intelligent you are or your personality traits per se. But if we if we do end up finding these differences between groups, well, we can't have this this mental link between the worth of a person and these certain differences in traits. And what essentially these these activists are doing is they're saying that I think they would deny that that link exists, but instead of just sort of driving the point home that we shouldn't judge people's moral worth based on, you know, these immutable traits that they don't have any say in, they're trying to say that, well, these are not true or they're suppressing this data, which, you know, if, if, if it turns out not to be the case, which looks to be uh, the case, then you kind of hold yourself hostage to any future discovery that we make about human behavior. Um, I know that Sam Harris gave a good result, uh, a good example of this before, where he talked about, I think it was a Nat Geo article that found out that people with white ancestry, or I guess non-black ancestry, tend to have more Neanderthal DNA. And the only group that doesn't seem to have this Neanderthal component of their DNA happens to be you know, black people, sub-Saharan African of uh, origin. And so there was a headline that was just like, you know, black people are, are, are human or well, what was the exact thing? It was that, you know, we're part Neanderthal and black people are, you know, they're just, they're just human and we're somehow have this Neanderthal DNA. But Sam Harris mentions that if it, if it turned out to be just the opposite, if it was only black people that had Neanderthal DNA, that could just be spun you know, in an, in an incredibly racist way, but it could have turned out to be the case. I mean, we don't know, there was no way to predict if that was going to be the case or not, but we can't just kind of hold our ourselves hostage to these future discoveries that could turn out to go either way, because it shouldn't matter which way the data goes on who happens to have Neanderthal DNA or a larger proportion of it. It shouldn't matter if who has Neanderthal DNA, because that shouldn't matter towards how worth a person is or their, um, anything about them as a as a human. Yeah, and that's actually a good point that the you know the traditional rhetoric about Neanderthal uh which there's some evidence saying it's probably overstated is they were kind of slow and not too smart and were outcompeted by uh Homo sapiens sapiens and and so arguing that the uh, Eurasian peoples uh had Neanderthal ancestry along the way way back yonder obviously mm-hmm. could and sort of most naturally fits a uh, negative stereotype rather than a positive stereotype so, exactly. so it's like what what the hell right mm-hmm. I think that was Sam Harris's point basically yeah, mainly that we can't be held hostage to these future discoveries. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's hugely important. There was also uh, a good article by Alex Machiel. I don't know if that's if I pronounced it right. There was also in Quillet, what explains the resistance to evolutionary psychology, and he wrote some similar things. You know that you know the nasty aspects of our human nature again are natural, therefore good, and that's a naturalistic fallacy. 
and then here's the key one we haven't talked about yet, is that an evolved human nature necessarily implies genetic determinism and inflexibility, which also seems to be some of the motivation for this resistance to evolutionary psychology. Uh, And yet, you know, we know human nature uh, in form of culture is highly malleable. You know, we look at the the range of cultures that have existed for the at least 10,000 years that we've been able to track them and probably further back than that in archaeology. And we know humans can live in many, many ways. And so this uh, idea that somehow that there's some genetic tendencies uh, in people around anything from aggressiveness to hierarchy to modes of discourse, et cetera, means that these are deterministic and inflexible, which is just not true. Yeah, there's definitely a fallacy there where people seem to think that when people say something is, you know, is genetic, that means it's completely 100% determined, doesn't have an environmental component. But when people say something has a genetic component, they're not saying that this is one-to-one going to lead you to perform this certain action. It's usually just, you know, differences in, in genetics and gene frequencies predicts this percentage of the variation in this certain behavioral trait or whatever trait you have. Um, and you can look at just the idea of reaction norms where in different environments, you know, your personality can, is going to change in certain ways. This is it's a difference between being influenced and being determined. No one's saying that having a certain gene for, you know, uh, intelligence or whatever is going to make you Einstein. And there's no single gene, you know, for intelligence. It's really sort of a multi-genes working in complex combinations uh, that are all additive that contribute more or less to certain traits. But, you know, this is, this is, all, this is all influences and not deterministic. But people think if you just sort of try to boil it down and give any biological component then you're just sort of saying that, you know, there's no point in trying to reform society or change our laws because everyone's just going to do whatever they're going to do anyway. And, you know, we're going to use this to justify the current disparities we see in society. And there's just, there's no justification for that, uh, those conclusions based on the fact that we can predict better than average someone's behavior based on their genes. And there's a classic example, which is uh, one of the strongest genetic determined linkages is around height. But yet we find that height is only manifested when the diet is correct, right? If you live on a starvation diet, low on protein and low on calcium, you're not going to be very tall, even though you had genes that in theory could produce height. So there's always a nature-nurture interaction. And it's, uh, I'm not a evolutionary biologist or a social scientist, but I've read a lot of both. And it always strikes me as almost insane that these either or discussions keep going on when it's just so obvious that if you stand from the outside and, and, and look in, the answer is always both, right? There's, you know, the, the two are, are, are interwoven in a complex web that both matter a lot in almost all cases. And, uh, you know, why can't people get away from this either or the blank slateism, uh, which is, you know, one poll, you don't hear about you know, real scientists don't ever, I don't know any that talk about, you know, rigid genetic determinism, but certainly the blank slateists argue that argument way beyond the point where it has any correlation with the evidence at all. Yeah. With, with the exception of just a few genetic sort of diseases or things like, you know, sickle cell anemia, almost everything can't be talked of. It's not, it's not a nature or nurture. It's just basically how much of each. And it's not even a component of each it's they're just innately completely tied together and not not just a quantitative way but they're just intimately tied together and you you made a good point whereas 
I even I don't think I've ever met another biologist who actually believes that everything is genetically determined and that it has a complete deterministic view of human behavior or uh, any aspect of biology, really. But and it's, it's often said that I'm strawmanning people when I say that, you know, when I, when I, when I criticize blank slateism. But it's kind of interesting that whenever you make an argument saying that, you know, there is a genetic component or there are real differences, you tend to just to get this wave of outrage of people yelling that this is, you know, this just a complete social construct. And there's no shortage of examples of people just vehemently screaming blank slate ideology at the top of their lungs, where the opposite isn't true. They, they have this false dichotomy between, you know, blank slate and determinism. And as far as I've ever seen, the, it tends to be blank slateism versus, you know, some sort of mixture, more nuanced position of, of nature and nurture. So that middle ground is, is definitely what's going to win because it's, it's well, closest to reality there. Though just to be fair, there are you know morons out on the internet that are yeah. uh, you know kind of neo-Nazi jackasses and people like that who argue these extraordinarily uh, ignorant and ill-informed genetic determinism. You know, I had to boot a couple of them out of one of my uh, Facebook groups recently. So that, you know that form of stupidity is indeed out there on that poll, but not from any scientists that I've ever met, and I met a bunch. So again, let's go on now to sort of get a little bit meta here, which is uh, how can one have a essentially scientific mind and build a theory that ignores the evidence? You know, I, I will put my flag in the ground. I point to uh, this sort of pernicious postmodernist way of looking at the world uh, where you're able to say, well, you know, that's just one way. Data and science are just one way of getting information. You know, Johns Hopkins is really no different than a witch doctor. It's just an another perspective. Do you have a sense that this uh, academic style postmodernism has something to do with this willful disregard of evidence? Yeah, it's 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 pretty mind-boggling. I think a lot of sort of those ideologies speak to what a lot of people, I guess, wish were true, and they, uh, yeah, I mean, they're 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 structured in such a, a complex-sounding way where they have this veneer of authority, and that there's a lot going on here with, you know, how intellectual these theories are and other ways of knowing. It just sounds all very very nice. And you just get this outpouring of this, this this empathetic nature that a lot of people, uh, more typically on the on the left, tend to share. And I think that it's just a major blind spot that uh, some people have, where they are using this sort of moralistic idea that things that are good and desirable, um, they're more likely to to look for evidence that those things are true. But as you mentioned, a lot of these sort of postmodern ideas, they they don't have a way to to verify the truth of their claims. They're based mainly on this idea of standpoint epistemology, which is this notion that you somehow gain more insight about the nature of reality and truth by the sort of arbitrary characteristics you have, whether it's your gender identity or your race. And of course, these things have some certain nugget of truth to them. Like, yeah, I, I won't be able to, you know, as a white guy, I won't know a lot of the experience and of what it means to be, say, like a black woman in America. But the idea that they can then therefore have a better say on actual reality based on these arbitrary characteristics. This is completely untenable because you just it just takes one other person with that same background to disagree with them. And then 
where do you move from there? How do you distinguish which person is correct, which person isn't? And it usually just devolves into like certain power dynamics and, you know, you're, you're, you know, lowercase b black, but you're not uppercase b politically this and, you know, the power dynamics situations are influencing these in certain ways where you need to acknowledge these privileges. And it just breaks down into this, uh, this, this war between, uh, between arbitrary groupings of people. And they, they, they act like they're creating knowledge, but these individuals don't understand what it means to, to know something in the sense of it being verifiably true and objectively true in a, in a sense that it's, it's falsifiable, it's falsifiable. And, you know, you don't have any special, special insight, special knowledge that's, you know, only privately revealed to you and can't be tested. And that's just a, it's a major problem because it's, it's creating a lot of conflict that can never be truly resolved. It's like having two religious people debate about certain aspects of God's personality. You can't ever verify it. (laughs) So, you know, just get the get the two different rel- religious sects to start talking to each other. Well, that's why you have so many different denominations right now because there's no way where a lot of religious sects can actually find out who's right and wrong about certain ideas that uh, that are completely untestable. Yep, and I, I like the way you said that. Now, let me uh, dig in a little bit to the what you said earlier, uh, which is it is true that one thing that is absolutely privileged, uh, at least till the brain scanners get better, uh, which they're getting better all the time, is our subjective state, right? One cannot share the subjective state of somebody else. And speaking from their subjective state about their subjective state, they're privileged, right? But that does not lead, at least by any logic I can follow, that the fact that your subjective state and how you interact with it and the insights you gain from it uh, have any bearing at all on distinguishing what is actually real in the real world. And indeed, you know, the huge accomplishment of the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution in the century before the Enlightenment was to replace doctrinaire statements or subjective senses of shamans or whatever about what is true in the world with a mechanism for actually uh, at least incrementally moving towards what is true or at least verifiable and as we like to say in the science world falsifiable and to give up on falsifiability and the inter subjective methods of verification of science where, you know, a scientific claim isn't true just because Collins said so, right? If you say something uh, scientific, there's immediately a, uh, a challenging to your methodology. People may try to replicate your work and see if it, if it replicates. If it doesn't, then that's a, you know, a mark against the argument. And as we both know in the scientific world, one of the great ways to advance your career is to debunk some giant of the past, right? That's the amazing beauty of the scientific method and the scientific culture. Now, scientific culture has, like any culture, some self-servingness. Those of us who have read our Thomas Kuhn know that clicks form and sometimes you just have to wait for the old guys to die out before a new paradigm occurs, or uh, etc. But in the whole, the scientific way of knowing strikes me as a huge step up from the you know subjective way of knowing actual facts about the universe. And, you know, the, this... Uh, growing strength, especially in academia, in uh, a postmodernist, you know, viewpoint perspective strikes me as exceedingly dangerous to the future of the, of the human race. Yeah, I, I totally agree. There's, it seems to be this, there's, they're stopping their inquiry way too early. So, you know, from a scientific point of view, 
someone's subjective state isn't meaningless. You know, this is this is something like this counts as data to some degree. Um, you know, if enough people of a community are coming forward and saying that this is my experience, you know, that's that's not nothing. But that's just the begin. That's the first step of a scientific inquiry into something. You know, you you have a bunch of people making a certain claim, and a lot of these groups are then just you know using that as the that's that's the beginning and the end of their inquiry. Whereas as a scientist, you'd say like, okay, this is an interesting phenomenon. People are claiming uh, claiming this certain phenomenon is occurring. Well, if it's a phenomenon that's that's real, then it can be measured. If it can be measured. You know, we can devise some sort of experiment that can measure it and we can quantify it. And then, you know, we will do the actual experiment, whether it's, you know, putting differently uh, named people on job resumes and seeing how much they get, you know, how the callbacks you get on those or things like that. Like that's an example of the way you can sort of test for these sort of structural problems or something. Um, or they'll look at just a disparity in society between two groups or, you know, say like men and women are paid differently. And then they'll use that just initial first glance uh, observation to say like, well, this is evidence of inherent sexism, except when you get down to actually controlling for the relevant, you know, different variables like hours worked and the types of jobs and preferences, uh, you know, this gap shrinks you know, dramatically. And so, you, you know, you can't just stop at the first hurdle. Like you, you need to actually go move forward and design that experiment and test it. And what science does that a lot of these other fields don't have is they have this principle of that something needs to be independently verified. It doesn't matter what your race is, what your gender identity is, what your sex is. You know, uh, if dogs could do science, they would still be able to identify that water molecule is, you know, uh, two hydrogens and one oxygen. This isn't dependent on who you are. A robot could make the same discoveries in principle uh, that we have in the scientific method. But that's not the case in these other fields where they just don't go that extra step to actually verify the truth of their claims. Yep, that's absolutely true. And actually, it's already that example already exists. Well, I wouldn't say computers or AIs are yet actually doing science. They are doing math, right? And proofs generated by AIs are held to the same standards of proof as proofs done by mathematicians. So the fact that it's done by an artificial intelligence doesn't change at all the rules for verification in the mathematical realm. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. And I also work in the area of artificial general intelligence, the uh, goal of human level intelligence. I'd be willing to bet within 30, 40 years, there'll be AIs doing science as well. Mm-hmm. And I would certainly expect them to be held to the exact same criteria as anybody else doing science. Yeah. Let's move on to the next topic. And this kind of, we've been kind of building towards this. You know, there's one form of what I'd call postmodernist thought that kind of exemplifies in some sense many of these things, and that's critical race theory. You know, I've spent some time looking into it, reading uh, reading people on it, et cetera, and I go, all right, I mean, I understand what the motivation is. There is no doubt that there is still significant structural racism in our country. We know from recent events in the news that there is real subjective pain in many, many people, particularly black people in America from our fucked up history about race and you know the original sin of slavery and then 100 years of Jim Crow and legacies of racism that have gone on beyond that. But critical race theory goes way beyond that. And it essentially, in fact, 
it doesn't even really use the basis in facts and history to support itself. It essentially becomes a self-referential and unfalsifiable lens. And to your point from previously, very much like a religion. There's no way to, you know, argue with it. You know, you oh, if you have if you have data, that's white man's data or green man's data or whatever, and therefore, uh, you know, data doesn't matter, right? And so it, it's, it's to my mind the pinnacle of one of these evolved, unassailable systems. And, uh, you know, if we look back in history, at least be my argument, I noticed you also said on Twitter that you're also, like me, a staunch atheist, mm-hmm. that when you use a self-referential, unfalsifiable religion, essentially, as a lens, generally you're going to be wrong. You know, it, it, it seems to me Thor doesn't cause thunder, Zeus doesn't throw lightning bolts, and whenever unfalsifiable and self-referential systems come into contact with new knowledge through the scientific method, essentially always the scientific method is the one that prevails. You know, you've tweeted a bit about critical race theory. Do you have any other thoughts about it and how it fits into these other issues we've talked about or how it compares at least to these other issues we've talked about? Yeah. So I would say the issue with critical race theory is basically that it's, it's it's a subset of critical theory generally, which is sort of based on Michel Foucault's ideas of power dynamics and Derrida's idea of sort of deconstruction. So that they basically, it's a purely like a negative way to go about things. Like they, they only problematize situations. They never really offer many solutions. They, they just kind of look for the ways that uh, sort of power dynamics are playing roles through the way we, we use language in our discourses, and that these different sort of groups like whites and blacks or Asians, they, they, they all are sort of participating consciously or sub, even subconsciously for the most part in trying to preserve dominant narratives in society and preserve their power. And to me, this is just a completely ridiculous way to look at everything. It's just, it's a, it's a conspiracy theory, basically, of, of human nature. Um, and this is not the way that people really act. Like that might be true on some national level where you actually have um, countries trying to edge out over other countries um, and, and preserve their power in certain ways. But for most people, it's it's really it boils down to individual people and the way that they behave. We shouldn't really be classifying people into as, as looking at individuals as just representatives of their entire group because it's sort of averages over the nuances of, of opinion that are within any certain group and assumes that they all are just in lockstep with the same ideology. A lot of this, these ideologies too, um, critical race theories, they have these, what are called like these Kafka traps, where if you try to argue against the ideas put forth in critical race theory, that's just used as evidence that their hypothesis is actually even more true. You know, if you, the idea of white fragility, where if you're a white person and you push back and say like, well, no, this is, you know, this, is, this isn't this is racism here. Well, that's just more evidence of your racism. So there's no way to win. You're basically damned if you do, damned if you don't. All roads lead to racism in this case. Uh, when that's the case, then, you know, if, if everything is racism, then then nothing is. It's, it's, it's just this all-encompassing ideology that can't be argued with. And, uh, then I, this shouldn't be taken seriously, therefore. 
Yeah, that's, that's what I refer to as the self-referential and unfalsifiable aspects of it. You know, it reminds me a lot of Marxist Leninism and had mm-hmm. some of those similar attributes. And, uh, you know, a lot of religions have built in what I call mimetic defense mechanisms. I still love to tell the story of my daughter, who is an even more staunch atheist than I. When she was growing up, one of her friends was a uh, Pentecostal and they would debate religion or anti-religion. And so my daughter said, well, what about the, the facts of the fossils, you know, that we keep digging up, which are millions of years old. How do, how do you uh, reconcile that with your young earth fundamentalism that says the earth's only 6,000 years old? And I just, I still am just amazed at how this mimetic defense mechanism was built into this particular religion. And this 13 or 14 year old girl just responded uh, very snappily, obviously pre-programmed. Oh, those fossils, they were put in there to test our faith. Perfect. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't get much better than that, right? You build in these mechanisms so that no evidence, no amount of evidence can, you know, can be brought to bear against the argument. And, you know, those kinds of things just have no sensible basis in being our tools for trying to navigate the world. Yeah. It's just sort of a modern day witch hunt for, I know that word is used a lot now and Trump's kind of ruined that for a lot of people. But uh, I do see that as being the case where you know, denying that you're a witch is evidence that you are one. And uh, and we see a lot of that cancellations going right now in, in our current time with anybody who gives any pushback against any aspect of this sort of um, critical race theory or criticizing ideas of what, you know, what does systemic racism even mean? Is this like, what, what are you talking about? And just, just the act of merely questioning it is just enough to get people to resign or get fired and have these online mobs come after them. Uh, it really it's kind of a scary time in that sense. Yeah, I mean, to, to my mind, structural racism is a useful concept, and one can think about what does it mean and how is it, you know, result of history, and what data can we use to verify that there are still effects from it, etc. But unfortunately, that's not the lens of critical race theory. They, it just is, right? And data is irrelevant. It's uh, it's essentially uh, an ideology rather than a scientific way of seeing. And it would it would be so much better if uh, these ideas could be probed and and looked at with a you know with an evidentiary perspective rather than just a proclamation one because you know people who think for themselves naturally get their backs up and they may actually be overreacting against things that may actually be true you know I, I run into Trumpians for instance that say oh there's no such thing as implicit racism well actually I happen to know the guy who did some of the fundamental work on that and but easily reproducible in the lab that there is indeed uh, implicit racism. Uh, and it's, by the way, you can measure it in people of all races. And so even though it's a part of the bundle of critical race theory, that by itself doesn't make it false, unfortunately, uh, that it gets bundled with various varieties of nonsense, and which then causes people who maybe don't have the background on the research to reject uh, even parts of it that are true, which uh, in some ways hurts their own argument. Yeah, I just, I just wish that there would be more discourse on these issues because I think, yeah, there's definitely a lot of truth that racism is a problem in the United States and we just need actual discourses that can lead to solutions rather than ones that are inherently seeking just to problematize literally everything. I mean, there's no state of the world that a critical theorist wouldn't consider problematic because that's just what they do. That's the only tool that they have to go in and investigate things. And I use investigate with even, you know, scare quotes because it's not a true investigation. 
it's yeah, it's 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 a purely. I mean, it's right in the word. Like it's it's deconstruction. They don't they don't build anything up. They just tear things down, and uh, then they they call that progress, or at least they 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 believe it is. But uh, at least a lot of us are thinking that maybe that's not the case. <laughs> Yeah, I would say I'm on board with you. I work with a group of people called Game B, which is trying to design the social operating system for the 21st century. And at least some of us try very hard to steer the effort away from the postmodernist swamp. Because as you say, they actually have come up with some good criticisms of things, but there seems to be nothing in their toolkit on how to build. There's nothing generative there. Uh, sometimes I've been known to say it's kind of like hiring an academic film critic to run a movie studio. That's not going to work out. Not too well, I can tell you, right? Yeah. You know, perhaps the postmodernists serve a useful purpose as critics of the mainstream world moving forward, but when they try to then craft uh, substantive ways to deal with the world, that's where one should be very, very skeptical seems to me. Well, anyway, I think we beat up on that enough. Let's move on to my next point. Uh, it's one of my favorite points. As I said, you tweeted that you're a staunch atheist, but the, you know, the behavior of many of these activists, you write, demonstrates that religion is a deep-seated aspect of human nature. Dogmas and objects of worship may change, but their structure remains largely unaltered. Religion isn't going away ever. Uh, I hope you're wrong there, but say some more about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to sort of be more on the Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris side of, of atheism where, and, and to some degree, I, I still am, where I, I wish religion wasn't a thing. And I thought that, you know, because I didn't need, I saw need, no use for this sort of worship and higher power thing in my own life, that this was something that everyone could essentially uh, do without if only they were taught the right things or something or um, they weren't indoctrinated from from a very young age, and I've sort of think that's not true anymore. I think that there is a religious instinct that people have, at least that manifests at a group level um, when people get together, and it, it really addresses a fundamental. I think it's a fundamental need people have to form like moral communities or to be in a, sh a sense of like shared shared destiny with other individuals, to be in community with one another. I think that's just part of human nature. The, the main issue is whether or not that part of human nature requires dogma in order to fulfill that, or if dogma can actually be separated from that sort of uh, religious drive that people have. I really hope that dogma can be separated because that's the only way that I think we can make some good progress on the religious front by sort of trying to create these other systems that will address these needs and wants that people just have this this biological drive towards, but without sort of lacing it with this, these terrible ideas that can't be questioned and, um, you know, that are, that are, uh, have many toxic results basically. So that's what that tweet was getting at. Just this idea that we, I think we're, I think we all have a tendency to be religious, at least as a species. And hopefully we can find ways to sort of understand that so we can try to create more systems that can, sort of mitigate the worst aspects of it, if that makes sense. 
Yep, it does. And I think you hit on it. Moral communities, right? That's what we really need. And that was probably what the, you know, evolutionary driver of the fact that, you know, as far as we know, every known civilization had something more or less like a moral community. Uh, many of them didn't have, some of them at least didn't have what you'd call dogmatic religion, but they had, they had a moral community with usually some supernatural aspects to it. But that doesn't have to have supernatural aspects, right? I really, uh, become taken with the work of John Verveke from the University of Toronto. And he talks about the religion that is not a religion, which is, you know, how do we define the equivalent of a religion that provides a moral community and a sense of meaning, but yet eschew adding on stuff that we just make up. And, uh, you know, I really commend that work and I hope we can see it. I also point out that there is at least some hopeful trends. You know, we look to uh, Northern Europe in particular, the Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands, England for that matter. Mm -hmm. The number of people that actually believe revealed religion is getting to a pretty small number in those countries. And even in the United States, the most religious of all the main economies, the fastest growing religious category are the nuns, ones that choose no religion. And so I think there's at least some hope. I'm not yet ready to throw in the towel. I particularly like this formulation of the religion that is not a religion. The idea that we can address the human needs for moral community without bringing in uh, unverifiable dogmas. Yeah. So I think there's sort of a conflation people have what they see like numbers in um, people who ascribe to these nominal religions like Christianity, Judaism, Islam. They see that these are sort of in certain areas in the West, like on the on the uh, downturn, they're going down, and they they use that as sort of a to, as evidence that you know people are getting less religious. But then you see a lot of the the protests, and you see this type of religion with this. These are mainly people on the left who are on average less religious, at least you know nominally so. So while I think we might be seeing a, a drop in people who are ascribing to these traditional religions, the ones we are easily identifiable as religions. Uh, I don't necessarily think that means that we're getting less actually religious. And I think that can actually spell some disaster because we see a lot of these sort of like this social justice type religion, but unless it's sort of seen as what it is, that it has this religious backbone to it, this spells trouble for things like our first amendment right to, you know, separation of church and state and, Congress shall make no law respecting a religion. But if things like social justice aren't seen as the religions that they are, that they're really closely resemble, then that's essentially, when we start making laws on these, then that's essentially breaking down that church-state separation uh, without us even knowing about it. And I think that, you know, people said it sounds hyperbolic when I say it, but I think if we start making laws based on this sort of critical theory religious system, that is essentially us as a society moving, you know, steps towards theocracy, whether or not we're recognizing it as such, because it's not, you know, it's not a Christian theocracy, it's not an Islamic theocracy. But I think there's a good case we made that it is a form of theocracy and it could be taking over right under all our noses because we're just not used to, you know, we don't, we don't have a name for it. It's not in our minds. It's not registering as a religion, even though I think it very much is. Yeah, and does not have any supernatural aspect. It really, it really is a, new, a religion that is not a religion. It has all the uh, self-referential and unfalsifiable aspects yeah. of religion, but it's in a uh, secular domain. And you know, if one were crafted usefully, that might not necessarily be a bad thing.
Yeah, I think the main so the main issue I have with with religion isn't necessarily their supernatural beliefs. I mean, that's that's a problem to some degree as far as, you know, the more distant your beliefs are from reality, the more your actions are based on these, you're going to influence people uh, for wrong reasons. But the, the main issue I have with religion isn't supernatural beliefs per se. It's the fact that they tend to be hotbeds of dogmatism. You know, there tend to be these areas where people believe in dogma and there's questions or that there's conclusions that can't be questioned. And this is something I see in spades in, in critical race theory and all critical theories. There's these unquestionable aspects that they have that you just need to just buy in. It's just, you know, it's a faith-based system. And that to me is the most dangerous part of religion. And hopefully we can get things like critical race theory, uh, these social justice movements classified as a religion, even without the supernatural aspect to it, because they do definitely have dogma, which is, as I said, I think is, is the worst part is what we what we should be most worried about uh, about theocracy. I think uh, you made your statement very clearly there. I think that is something we should certainly be thinking about. All right. Well, I think that's uh, kind of the meat of our conversation today. But I do have one. I've got a couple more items. I'm just going to skip them. They're kind of secondary. I think we hit most of the things we want to talk about. You mentioned on your Twitter profile that you are a lover of whiskey with both an E and without an E. Why don't we talk about something fun for our last few minutes here? (laughs) And uh, tell me a little bit about what you like about your whiskeys. And I'll talk about what I like. Yeah. So um, what I like about whiskey, that's it's maybe a shorter list of, you know, what I don't like about it. Cause I like just about everything. I like how crafty the process is basically from the beginning when you're harvesting the grains and the, all, all the countless different processes you can do before you, uh, it goes in the barrel. And even after it goes in the barrel, um, I think it's one of the most complex drinks out there that has just so many layers of complexity to it. And, it's something you can sip, you can enjoy with a cigar if, the, if you like doing that. And you can you can collect them and compare different flavors and different pro, uh, flavor profiles and the distinctions between bourbon and scotch and world whiskey and it, how the different processes that go into making them change the flavors in subtle to you know dramatic ways. So it's, it's just, it's, it's not so much that I even like whiskey, it's more of a, a hobby as the way I see it and just learning about the process and then, you know, learning to, to sort of adapt your palate to different types of whiskeys and be more discerning. It's just a, it's such a fun, uh, a fun act, even if you're never, you know, you're not getting, uh, I, I enjoy drinking when I go out with friends too, but it's, it's one of those things where I just might have one glass, I'm not getting, getting drunk on it. It's just something I, I like to, you know, sit back in and enjoy for, uh, for the sake of it. Yeah, very well said. Yeah, I've uh, been a fan of originally bourbon. Uh, for many, many years, I was mostly a bourbon drinker. Uh, you know, part of that came from my time in the 70s when I lived in the bluegrass of Kentucky and uh, where, where bourbon was a high religion. And I got to try some bourbons that didn't ship much out of Kentucky. And uh, that included Maker's Mark back in the 70s, believe it or not. That was uh, kind of the when, if you had the money when I was in my early 20s, that's what you'd buy was Maker's Mark. And uh, it basically didn't ship out of the state, at least not very much of it. Of course, now we, it's pretty ubiquitous. And I continue to be a, a, a fan of bourbons and, you know, had my favorites at various times. And, you know, as I 
moved along in the world, my palate also got more refined, I guess, or at least turned out the liquor I like got more expensive. I suppose that means I have a more refined palate. But uh, of course, sometimes you find some, some, some great ones that aren't that expensive. Like I recently found a really good one, Bowman's. It's a Virginia bourbon. And the low end, a cheap $29 Bowman's, uh, reminds me of nothing more than Pappy Van Winkle, 12-year-old, the low-end Pappy. Mm-hmm. Very similar for $29 a bottle. If you, you know, if you like pa- if you like Pappy Reserve, the 12-year-old Pappy, try Bowman's. But about 10 years ago, I don't know how, uh, I started getting interested in single malts. You know, I you know, kind of lived through the 90s when that was a big fad and all the restaurants started having lots of them. But somehow I got a bottle somewhere, someone made me drink it or something, my traditional bourbon drinkers biases against uh, scotch. I go, hmm, some of these uh, single malt scotches are really damn good. And my wife had long been a, a scotch drinker, though she likes she likes the real peaty ones like uh, Lafroig and what's the other one? There's a couple other t- Talisker, a few other really peaty ones. Yeah. My taste more towards the low peat ones, and so I've become uh, quite taken with some of the scotches over the last ten years. And you know, Oban I like a lot, and Macallan I like uh, overpriced probably for what it is, but uh, but good. And Balvini, another one I like. Uh, what are some of the uh, scotches that you like? You know, I, I do like some of the peaty ones, but they can sometimes go overboard if that's if that's all they do. There's a really great one. It's a Lafroig 18 year. That's it's not available anymore, but it's it, to me it's one of the best peaty whiskeys or scotches you can get because it's it's just the age sort of takes the the um, the bite out of the smoke and it's just sort of there in the background and it's it's just one of the most complex and elegant whiskeys I've ever had. I've been getting into um, sort of the more sherried uh, scotches now, the ones that are aged in uh, ex-sherry barrels or sometimes port casks. And um, so for those, I've been I've been really enjoying uh, Glendronic recently, which is a, a sherried uh, scotch. And I had a friend get me the 18-year, and then someone, a, a Twitter fan, for, for God's sake, bought me their 21-year-old scotch and sent it to me, which is absolutely amazing. Uh, so, yeah, I've been getting into uh, a lot of the the sort of sherried and sort of more nuanced PD scotches. But then I've also been getting really into uh, the Japanese whiskeys. They're, they just seem to be like a, a champagne of whiskey nowadays. They sort of have a scotch influence, but they just go for the, the sweet nectar floral notes. And they're just, I don't know how else to describe them, but just works of art. <laughs> and they're just super elegant, but their prices starting to spike on those because uh, the word is out on Japanese whiskey. Interesting. Yeah, my wife likes those Japanese whiskeys. I tried one. I forget the Yakamura or something. I don't remember. But uh, did, it didn't do it for me. It was, uh, you know, I don't know why. I just uh, She loves them. I'm glad but, uh, I took me. a pass on it. <laughs> uh, currently, my favorite is uh, Oban 18. Uh, just so smooth and rich and a little hint of peat and uh, beautiful color, beautiful smell. Man, that's even uh, – I probably now – doing more Oban 18 than I'm doing all my bourbons put together, which is uh, very, uh, you know, quite a change from uh, from my traditional approach. Yeah, those are great ones for sure. I, I, I started out liking the really sort of peaty scotches. And then after a while, I've, I have started revisiting some of the more uh, lesser uh, intense ones. And I found that I can, I'm enjoying those a lot more. I sort of had, I didn't used to like whiskey back in the day and I, I forced myself actually to get into it because I just sort of liked the way people looked when they enjoyed whiskey. And so <laughs> I bought myself 
a bottle of the harshest whiskey I could find. I got a cask strength, uh, uh, the rare breed from wild Turkey. And I made myself have a little bit each day, just neat and enjoy a glass. Well, I did enjoy it at the time. And then after I sort of destroyed my palate for about a month while I sipped on a little bit every night, then I could then revisit some of the more, uh, the, the lesser intense whiskeys. And all of a sudden the my palate just opened up and I could, I could taste the flavors of these whiskeys that until then, uh, had felt like just nothing but burning. So, uh, there's at least for me, I, I, I faked it till I made it. And now, uh, I actually enjoy it more than anything. So <laughs> you can, you can definitely coach yourself into, into liking it. Interesting. That's a, that's an interesting experiment. I never would have <laughs> thought of trying that, but Hey, maybe, maybe they'll give me an excuse to Baker's. I think it's like 145 proof or something. It's uh, comes from the, yeah. Baker's is also Booker's is like really yeah, intense. Those are good ones to try that experiment with for sure. <laughs> And I do like uh, ones in that style. Like for a long while, I drank Knob Creek. That was my uh, favorite for quite a while, which is another one from the from the same house. Basically, Booker's and Baker's uh, and Knob Creek all come from the Jim Beam lineage and have uh, some similarities in their grain bills, et cetera. And, and, and they're noticeably similar, though they're also different. Though in the last few years, I'd moved on in my bourbon to two that are quite different. One is Jefferson Reserve, which is very refined, very smooth, relatively light flavors, uh, but with some considerable complexity. And then the other is Elmer T. Lee, which is a Mm -hmm. single barrel, fairly obscure Kentucky bourbon that I happened to get exposed to by a friend at a dinner party. And I managed to scoop up 10 bottles before it became fashionable. Yeah, it's hard to find those ones now. And I'm still working my way through my uh, collection of Elmer T. Lee. And if people can find one, uh, that's a good one. Well, I think we have uh, reached about the end of our time here. And I wanted to thank you for coming on the show and being so forthright on on your views and your thoughts and your personal history. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate you giving me the chance to sort of talk about what's been going on. Yeah, it's great to get people's perspective out into the out into the air. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jane's Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.